Welcome to Voicing Across Distance. This is episode four, Antiphonal Life, The Voice in the Building, and Pharyngeal Ventriloquism. My name is Masi Asari. There are three parts to this podcast, a conversation with a scholar on voices in our time of COVID-19, a reading from a book on voice, and a practical vocal exercise or experiment from an expert. I'll start today in conversation with UCLA professor Shauna Redmond, followed by a duet of readings from her new book, Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. Then we'll wrap up with a meditative vocal experiment from my guest voice teacher for this episode, Robert Susuma. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I'm so thrilled to welcome my guest scholar for this episode, Shauna Redmond. Shauna Redmond is professor of musicology and global jazz at the University of California, Los Angeles, and is an interdisciplinary scholar of music, race, and politics. She is the author of Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora, which is an interdisciplinary cultural history that tracks the songs that organized the modern black world. Her most recent book, Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson, from Duke University Press in January 2020, develops the theory of antiphonal life in order to track Robeson's sonic travels, form, and animation throughout the 20th century. She is the series co-editor for Phono, Black Music, and the Global Imagination with the University of California Press and an editorial board member for the Music and Social Justice series with the University of Michigan Press. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Congratulations on the new book. It's very exciting. Thanks so much. So with this new book, Everything Man, and your previous um, anthem, both make the important contribution of really attending to what voices can carry in their togetherness and relation, whether in voicing solidarity or and pushing back against other voices that would seek to silence them. And when we talked a couple days ago, you made the point that part of what it's important to consider in this moment is the question of who are we? Who are we? I guess in many in many senses, who is able to speak and be heard in this moment, um, whose voices carry. So I wanna ask you to kick off here. Could you just speak a bit about your thoughts on this topic, um, on the task of hearing a multiplicity of voices right now? Sure, I think it's a a really urgent moment actually to consider who the we is. Um, How do we actually articulate who our communities are? Are we comprehensive? Are we thinking critically about who's included, who's excluded, and not just simply um, by virtue of proximity or various types of access, but really about the fundamental structural elements that divide us and make others of us, some of us radically vulnerable in ways that other of us are not. And I think this critical crisis moment with the pandemic is really, really opening up 
the opportunity for thinking about those divisions in ways that some of the normalized um, business as usual temporalities do not allow for. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. to say that the vulnerabilities we're experiencing now are necessarily new, but they are that much more stark. So thinking about people who are uh, immunocompromised, people who are differently able, abled and have disabilities, mm -hmm. folks who are doing mm -hmm. service work in ways that are now seen as essential and are making them compromised. So I think to be really critically attuned to how we use that language of we, of us, mm -hmm. is really important. Certainly the ways that it's been used by the sitting president do not reflect any community that I would identify with. And so mm -hmm. I wanna be really attuned in my own work to um, considering those differences that happen not just uh, interracially, but also intraracially. And so mm -hmm. Anthem, I think in particular, was one of those efforts to think about how we begin to identify ourselves, how we come to understand who we are individually, but then also on a larger scale and across various geopolitical borders too. And I mm -hmm. think that music provides that opportunity, even as it also quite often reflects some of these structural differences and structural inequalities, right? Music is not um, in and of itself a universal language as we mm -hmm. so often hear, mm -hmm. right? That there are very right. different types of, um, of differences in access that are made available through kind of close listening and close readings of these mm -hmm. songs and of these performances. And so I, I mm -hmm. think that just given the political climate, given the, the urgency of articulation at this moment, but also given the urgency of figuring out how to communalize, how to mm -hmm. come together, how right. to actually develop bonds of solidarity, we have to really dig in around this question of who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think there's so often this tendency to, like you said, speak in, in these terms as if music is universal. You know, those images that I remember seeing in March, um, you know, on social media of Italians singing folk songs across balconies and this general sense. I spoke with Neil Varmuk um, a couple weeks ago, who's a media scholar about um, the simultaneous radio broadcast of the song You'll Never Walk Alone, which was broadcast by 160 radio stations in Europe. And so there are these gestures toward thinking, well, in voice, in singing together, we are all on the same page. And it's very uh, slip slippery. And um, and I think, and I just really appreciate the way you're laying this out to think about um, the way that we are not always all in this together in the same way. And that, that's important to really consider that. Right. I think that there are absolutely bonds that are forged through these performance practices. Um, but I do think that we have to recognize that, first of all, there are people who don't come to the performance, people who do not mm -hmm. subscribe, people who do mm -hmm. not um, participate in ways that may be coerced or may be mm -hmm. completely voluntary. People decide to uh, step away from these opportunities or to not participate, but also even those who do participate, there are unequal mm -hmm. dynamics that are involved in those performances as well. So to think yeah. really closely um, and deeply about the composition, to think about volume, to think about um, the circumstances under which people are individually or in small groups participating in these events. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a mm -hmm. lot of the 
inspirational kinds of memes and videos that have circulated around the global pandemic have been precisely of those moments, right? The folks mm -hmm. on the balconies in Italy mm -hmm. singing across buildings, across space to one another. And while mm -hmm. heartwarming, those of us who pay really close attention to these performances actually recognize that there's a lot of, um, there, there's a lot yet to be revealed about those performances. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. yet to be told. We don't actually understand completely who is participating under what forms of duress. And mm -hmm. to think about music as not simply a moment of escape is really mm -hmm. important, right? That even mm -hmm. when people are performing, they're not just looking for flight. They may actually be struggling through something in that moment mm -hmm. that keeps them super grounded in that moment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the person who's crying through tears or the person yeah. who's singing very quietly in the ear of right. someone who's ailing, all of those right. things add Count. different yeah. important layers to those circumstances. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really hitting me. In my neighborhood here in Chicago, I think different neighborhoods are doing different things, but in my neighborhood at 8 p.m. on Saturdays, and only very recently, only the past couple of weeks, I feel, um, people are doing the clapping and the cheering and the flashing of lights. And I stepped out, I have a tiny balcony, I stepped out yesterday and I wasn't sure <laughs> what it represented. Like I wasn't quite sure it felt like it was, you know, there was this kind of sense that, oh, we're cheering on essential workers, but it felt more like people just wanted to party, you know, like yes. it was more just like we wanted to be known that we're here and the weather's really nice and we wish we could be at the club. And it, that was kind of the energy. And I was like, do I, do I want to add my voice to this? I'm really, I'm not sure. <laughs> so I think the openness of, of the sign of the voice and of, of voicing in these moments is, is important to remember. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the, also that moment of interpretation, right? Interpolation mm -hmm. and interpretation, right? That mm -hmm. do I want to mm -hmm. be interpolated into what I witness or experience as radically different than what this kind of stated intent is, right? Yeah. And that's also yeah. not to account for all of the other ways in which people are audibly um, working in solidarity or in response to the contemporary moment, right? People who speak and sing in other languages, right? Those yeah. things that don't surface in the same kind of ways as the Anglophone world might portray. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot to be said about those moments, right? And I think there's something yeah. important about them being immediate kind of feel-good moments for some people as well. Right. But I hope that over time, people will kind of consider them an archive of sorts that they can return to and really bring yeah. some critical depth to. Yeah, yeah. You know, this makes me want to transition. I have a question about your new book um, and specifically what is so compelling. And I think about what you're writing is, um, that you are asking us to think about Robeson's voice not just as vocal sound, but also as critical action, as critique. And I think there can so often be a tendency to focus on, you know, like in sound studies, it can get really technical. Like, <laughs> let's look at the sound waves and like, let's, let's think right. about the tech, um, which can reduce or sort of elide some of the critical work that's actually happening. I would love to, if you could just say a little bit about. Um, how you came to this project of writing the book um, and sort of and theorizing Robeson's capital V voice in this way. I came to this project in a very kind of circuitous uh, route that is not entirely clear to even me <laughs> at this moment. 
So after writing about him in Anthem, I became wholly obsessed mm -hmm. with this individual, but never mm -hmm. imagined that I would actually return to him, certainly not in any long form way. He kind mm -hmm. of just became a kind of background muse to so much of what I was thinking about in the mm -hmm. world. And I started a whole other project um, thinking that I had walked away from this person in any formal sense. But he kept coming back. He was coming back in the art exhibits that I was attending. He was coming back in the secondary literatures I was reading. He was coming back as mentioned by various of the poets and activists who I was reading mm -hmm. about for various other projects and teaching. And at a certain point, the, he was just so present that I could no longer ignore him, that there was a hmm. moment at which I had to pause and say, okay, he's trying to tell me something. Someone is trying to tell me something. Mm -hmm. So what pieces can I pull together and see if there's actually a there there? Is there something that I need to continue pursuit of? Mm -hmm. And um, it, it first led me to, to this interest in the hologram, oddly enough. Um, Which is such a cool part of your book. I, I'm so excited about it. I've been thinking about holograms separately in another project and, you know, whatever. We could have a whole other conversation about that, like holographic pop stars and yeah. et cetera. But, but yeah, and I think especially in this moment right now where we are... Um, we kind of wish, here I am with the we again, I wish that I knew how to be a hologram, you know, in different places. Like I'm in this one place and I wish I knew how to be present right. sort of remotely. And, and, and Robeson was already doing that, right? But right. before, um, as, as you write about. Exactly. And that's what really gave me that footing in thinking about his holographic presence was the fact that he was in so many different locations all at once, but mm -hmm. also as an agentive animate kind of action on his end right mm -hmm. as he was a living person recognizing during the term of his detention mm -hmm. um, when his passport was revoked from 50 to 58 right mm -hmm. he was very deliberate about the types of dispatches that he was sending to the rest of the world how he yeah. would continue to make himself present even in recognition of the fact that the federal government was refusing his right mm -hmm. to travel um, and so I wanted to think really critically about what that actually meant. How did this person share himself so thoroughly with mm -hmm. this eager, anticipatory world under such duress? How did he become that person, first of all, who was called regularly, time after time after yeah. time, um, for assistance, for solidarity, for um, his his vocal quality. They were calling him again and again and again. First that, but then also how then did he respond? How did he make himself available? And that mm -hmm. was, you know, the, the um, kind of footing for the foundation for antiphonal life, right? That he's constantly mm -hmm. being called and he's finding ways to respond even after mm -hmm. death. Um, but the just, hologram, in case anybody's not familiar with the word antiphonal, I mean, it sure. is kind of what you just said, but maybe you can say a little bit about what it means. Yeah. Yeah. So antiphonal is um, kind of the practice, particularly within Black global musics, of mm -hmm. call and response. Mm -hmm. And it is a vocal form that is often, you know, made available between a soloist and some small vocal ensemble or choir, mm -hmm. but is, is also carried between soloists, between larger mm -hmm. groups. 
um, mm -hmm. and is a regular feature of Black musical performance. Uh -huh. And I'm using it here as a way to think about um, not only his vocal practice, but also his political practice and how the yeah. two were intimately twinned. And hence, as you mentioned, the use of voice, capital V, throughout mm -hmm. the project as a way of of bringing those two um, evidences, those two performances into close conversation, but also, and this is something that I didn't articulate in the book because I've only thought of it since our conversation this week, also mm -hmm. considering how intimately the voice belonged to him, right? It was a mm -hmm. capital V like Paul was capital P, right? Exactly. It, was, yeah. it was uniquely his, indistinguishably his. Um, yeah. And... Um, yeah, and you also write about sort of physically he was so he had such a commanding presence, right? His stature and his physicality in the same way that it's kind of capital P. So, and, and his voice did the same thing, right? Had its kind of similar commanding physicality. And absolutely. so it makes sense that it would also come into the role with a capital V as well. Absolutely. It was his body in all of these fantastic ways. And I think, you know, as much as we talk about vocalists and vocal music, I think we're still, unless we're on the technical end of performance, right, unless mm -hmm. we're coaches or things such as that, we do less work to actually take command of um, the body as, as some kind of unique infrastructure for detailing mm -hmm. these musics. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, it is something that um, makes more sense when attached to an iconic vocalist mm -hmm. um, but is something that to really account for in this moment especially considering how marked his body was how marked his yeah. person was as a political figure as a racialized mm -hmm. figure mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to consider yeah and and I think what's I wanted to mention I, I was fortunate to get to hear you speak about this work a couple years ago at UCLA where you were giving a keynote for the song stage and screen conference which is a musical theater studies conference. Robin Kelly introduced you and was full of praise for your work and noted that um, it just made an impression on me that your first book, Anthem, really shifts the focus in an important way from cultural production to circulation, to thinking about how do songs and voices circulate, which is not, you know, there's so much about like the art object, right? The, the music work. And so to think about circulation as a musicologist is a really important contribution and it just it's it's exciting to me how this new book seems to kind of extend that project in certain ways to me and in, in thinking about how Robeson and his voice have circulated and continue to circulate right the ways that he's as you said still very animate right now absolutely I mean I've become obsessed with music as a strategy and that has mm -hmm. really come to define so much of my work mm -hmm. um because I do think there is this fetishization of the object or the technique rather than the mm -hmm. impact that it has in the broader world. And I'm less interested in other of the arts criticism, which is taking account of or trying to assess whether or not it was good or bad. I'm not interested in that so much as I'm interested in how do these listening communities develop new publics by taking up these artists and taking up these songs as mm -hmm. significant parts of how they identify themselves. Again, coming back to this question of the we, that music mm -hmm. becomes a major element of how people understand and perform themselves in the world. 
Um, and this project, and you know, part of the thinking with the subtitle, The Form and Function of Paul mm -hmm. Robeson was really about trying to announce that both of those things have to be attended to in, in significant ways, particularly mm -hmm. with a figure like Paul Robeson, that we can't just understand him as an art performer who was very um, agreeably wronged, right? We can all agree mm -hmm. on that to some extent. Mm -hmm. But we actually have to understand that he's far greater than what so much of the literature has allowed by virtue mm -hmm. of his function, that he becomes uh, a tool for people to continue living mm -hmm. through their frightening present. Mm -hmm. And if we consider him in that way, then it's difficult to actually make him just an art singer, right? It's difficult yeah, yeah. to make him just Joe in Showboat, that he is so much yeah. more, even in having mastered both of those things. Yeah, he kind of comes off the pedestal in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. And, he, cool. and he's interactive then, right? Mm -hmm. Precisely mm -hmm. that, off the pedestal, meaning, and this is part of the, the language that I try to use in the book, right? I call him everything man because he was everything to everybody, but insisted on his ordinariness. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so he was someone who understood himself in communion always with other people, that he was not exceptional. He did mm -hmm. not want to be an icon in that way. He wanted to make his life of service to other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important kind of pivot in thinking about some people who have become kind of mythic in the imaginary of either art scholarship mm -hmm. or, um, you know, fans mm -hmm. amongst fans. And also the way that black figures are memorialized, you know, Absolutely. or not, when black figures are memorialized, there's a tendency to kind of stick to the, the statue and the pedestal and that's it. And anything exactly. that might kind of shake up our reality now and have an, a direct, it might animate other kinds of politics in this moment um, are less welcome, right? And so I think it's exciting that you're writing into that. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention to you is um, uh, a couple episodes ago, I was speaking with Neil Verma, who is a radio historian and media studies scholar here at Northwestern. And he was speaking about this kaleidosonic style of the 1930s, a sort of um, a form that seems to present, and it's actually interesting in conversation with what you're saying, because he was critiquing the way that it seems to present all the voices of all the people, but really fails to do that, right? And so, um, but he was saying that uh, the very first example of this style of that's, you know, ballads and poems and performances that were often on radio was Robeson's uh, Ballad for Americans. And I know you know this this piece well and that you were actually recently involved in a restaging, um, a revoicing of this work at UCLA. So could you could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So in February of this year, I um, scheduled or helped to curate um, a number of events partially to coincide with the book's release in January um, that included a concert. So there was a book symposium for the project earlier in the day. And then that evening there was a concert. And my idea was to organize it around a restaging and updated revision of Ballad for Americans. Um, so it was this past uh, year, 2019, was an anniversary year for the original performance, the 80th anniversary of its performance on radio. 
Um, and so it was a, a nice coincidence to have that opportunity to reflect on it and to think about how in this moment of this president, how again, do we constitute who we are? So the question of that is constantly reiterated amongst the chorus asked of Robeson again and again and again and again in the, mm -hmm. in the composition is, who are you? Who are you? Mm -hmm. And he goes through this 10 minute piece documenting all of the people that he believes himself to be, mm -hmm. right? And of course, it's meant for an audience in 1939 and requires revision to update how we understand ourselves, but also sure. how we understand this, the history that he's uh -huh. attempting to document. So they begin with the American Revolution and carry it into the Industrial Revolution uh -huh. up to the present day. And so have a lot of language in there praising the founding fathers, which uh -huh. <laughs> upon reflection is yeah. um, neither noteworthy nor um, wholly <laughs> deserved. And so um, the soloist yeah. performer for the performance at UCLA was the wonderful Toshi Regan. And she and I collaborated in revising the lyrics of uh -huh. the piece, which has been revised a number of times. I know that mm -hmm. um, the New York Labor Chorus has performed the song with revision hmm. in the last decade. There's a Welsh choir that I um, mm. speak to in Everything Man, who has also as recently as 2017 revised the song mm -hmm. and performed it. Robson's memory is so alive in Wales, as, as you document for us, in the lab so, labor movement there. Mm -hmm. It's super deep and resonant mm -hmm. in Wales. It's probably the, the country that has best preserved his mm -hmm. memory. Um, so it was beautiful to be there. But um, the song has been taken up of uh -huh. recent and revised, so we took our stab at it, Toshi and myself, um, uh -huh. and we displaced Mr. Thomas Jeff Jefferson, a mighty fine man, <laughs> as he documented okay. in the original recording. A little and, less mighty fine, okay. Yes, definitely not mighty fine, and just removed <laughs> him completely. Um, and then also there's language about Abraham Lincoln, of course, in the telling uh -huh. of how um, slavery ended, and I wanted to be really... Um, clear about the fact that uh, enslaved peoples emancipated themselves. It mm -hmm. was not by presidential decree. And so that sure. too was mm -hmm. adjusted. Um, and the, mm -hmm. then there are a number of other kind of ad libs that were part of the mm -hmm. original recording that just did not fit with the time. So mm -hmm. um, she paid a lot of attention to um, the later solo portions where they mm -hmm. document I'm Czech and double Czech and Italian and atheist and mm -hmm. Catholic and all of those things. She did a lot to adjust those to fit her needs and mm -hmm. investments. Um, but it was a really beautiful production wow. and people were very responsive to it and backing her yeah, a choral piece as well yeah yes so backing her um, in her solo portion were the two two of the main choirs in the UCLA School of Music it was the concert choir yeah. and the uh, ensemble of African-American music which is basically wow. a gospel ensemble on uh -huh. campus and so they both joined as Beautiful. her backing chorus, as well as having earlier in the program sung their own portions of the program that were composed of spirituals drawn from Robeson's mm -hmm. broader repertoire. So it must have been just a wall of sound. It was. It was voices. really yeah. dynamic and um, really moving. And I'm so appreciative to her and to mm -hmm. the other singers in the choirs because it was a great experience and one that I think was was pretty fitting in mm -hmm. tribute to this giant. Mm -hmm. Amazing. 
you know, I think it's noteworthy that this happened before the, you know, the response to the pandemic, well, before the pandemic really hit hard here in the U.S. And so even though now, as I was speaking with Neil, there is this impulse to kind of do this kaleidosonic moves. I think it's also just a reminder that the questions that you're asking and that you're asking kind of at the behest or at the inspiration of Paul Robeson about who are we, who is this we, those questions are always relevant, even if, um, you know, they may seem to come up in certain ways right now, they were relevant before the pandemic, they'll be relevant afterwards. And and I think um, I think it's so hard to find things that are constant. You know, sometimes it feels like everything is changing, but the, the most important questions are constant and they do remain and the urgency is still attached to them. Absolutely. It's the changing same that Baraka mentions, right? And That's I right. think to mm-hmm. consider ourselves anew, not just every single day at an individual level, but consider our communities, who we identify with, mm-hmm. who we want to assist in building a better world, who we want to do that work with matters. Mm-hmm. This is great. Thank you so much for for sharing your brilliance and for talking this through with me. I'm really excited. I have another piece of this podcast where I usually read aloud um, from a book about voice. And um, since you have this wonderful new book, um, I thought it would be great if we could do some reading from it. So I think if you're cool with this, we'll do a little bit of a duet. Yes. I'll do a reading of a passage that I really love because it has to do with Paul Robeson in his home mm-hmm. <laughs> in a very, very literal, but also poetic and sonic way, um, which just felt resonant to me in this moment. And then um, I know you have a passage as well that you'd like to read. Yes. I've chosen this passage about a certain feature of the Paul Robeson House and Museum in Philadelphia. Paul is not only documented in the home, he is built into it. In a room adjoining his, one formerly belonging to his adopted niece Pauline, there is a modest stained glass window. It is relatively plain upon sight from the doorway, Without color, but with distinct and different textures, it is marked by the lead threads that articulate its craftwork. It might go unremarked if not witnessed at close range. In the very center is a green-hued circle that, when approached, reveals the iconic image made popular in the promotional flyers from the 1936 film version of Showboat. This image of Robeson as Joe reveals the sound behind the glass as that of his anthem, Old Man River. His voice is part of the fractured and leaden pieces of the window that reflect both his image and the one gazing upon it. Like the metal scaffolding at the Opera House in Sydney, Paul's voice strengthens the stained glass on Walnut Street, much as it did those of the famous St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which he visited in 1958 to sing in support of anti-apartheid forces. He was the first black man to sing there. Shirley Graham Du Bois, scholar and wife of Dr. Du Bois, was there for the occasion in which he sang the sorrow songs, including Climbing Jacob's Ladder, from the pulpit that no other layperson hitherto had occupied. She recalled, quote, his magnificent voice rising to the vaulted dome, reflected in the stained glass windows and resting upon the hushed crowd like a benediction, end quote. Though less ornate, the window in his home is as revealing as any in the cathedral and rings with his songs and convictions. The position of the medallion in the window frame is suggestive of his lifelong commitment to the liberation of the global south 
and efforts on behalf of working and oppressed peoples everywhere. Paul is in three-quarter profile, facing south and casting his eyes away and slightly downward from the camera. He was not in it for fame then, nor is he now. No eye contact with the witness encourages us to look in the direction of his gaze, away from his starlight and toward others. There is no plaque and no memory of its installation. In fact, the house website lists it as one of three mysteries they'd like to solve, but it is in some ways the most telling piece of the home. He is there, transparent and available, watching, listening, and still providing instruction on its interpretation. Which one have you chosen? Or should I just listen? Do you, do you want to just, just sure. read it and just go? Sure. Okay, cool, I'm excited. Okay. Robeson was the raw material that in turn made possible other types of building, both literal and figurative. His presence at the construction of the Sydney Opera House in November 1960, after the reinstatement of his passport, was a defining moment for the Opera House. He was, in fact, its first performer. He sang that opera into being. Standing without elevation alongside the workers at the open-air work site, Robeson began to sing his standards a cappella in the process, differently imagining the work and sound of that space. Perhaps it was his anthem, Old Man River, that elicited the most response from the laboring men of the Building Workers Industrial Union. Their preemptory clapping led to his low hum as he found his pitch and characteristically raised his right hand to his ear. With a discernibly lower register than that of his heyday, his sound was delivered as vibration and propelled back as such through both the rapt attention and camaraderie of the workers and its collision with the steel scaffolding of the opera house structure, the rigidity of which provided a din of its own in confrontation with Robeson's rich bass. The stiffness or elasticity of the pipes allowed for the pressure or stress that determined the possibility for execution of longitudinal vibration. Even as Robeson held his hand to his ear to recoup some part of his vibration, these pipes conducted his vocal energy. Strong enough to hold the many workers struggling for a better view, this scaffolding pulsed with his song, becoming stronger and more resilient for the fact of his voice's challenge and announcing back to him that he was well received. This luscious call and response in the man-sized steel tinker toy of sun and sweat developed in distinction to the finished Sydney Opera House, which is renowned for its poor acoustics. Paul never performed inside. He was received and revered without walls or the artifice of acoustic clouds. His tone and delivery made for reverberative possibilities that cannot be constructed with concrete and steel, even if those same materials in bare form become part of his experimental open air performance. Beautiful. I just want to say thank you for joining me. It's been such a pleasure to be able to speak with you and to celebrate the publication of your new book. Congratulations again. Thank you for reading for us. And um, it's been wonderful to hear your thoughts on voice and voicing in this moment. Thank you so much for having me. I wish you all the best and take good, good care. Thank you. You too. Old Man River, that old man river, he must know something, but don't say nothing. He just keeps rolling, he keeps on rolling along. 
I'm so delighted to welcome Robert Sisuma, who is joining me vocally as our guest vocal instructor for this episode. Robert Sisuma, originally from New York City, teaches voice internationally, leading transformative workshops for singers and singing teachers throughout Spain and France through his unique brand of experiential vocal learning. Robert is an explorer, a lifelong learner, and a connoisseur of connections, movement, speaking and singing, voice science, emotions, music, motor learning, neurology in action, and deep personal development, to name a few. His formal education is in vocal performance with a Bachelor's of Music in Voice Performance and Master's of Music in Early Music Voice Performance. However, early in that training, he was introduced to the Feldenkrais method of somatic education and has seen the two fields as inseparable ever since. He is now a Guild-certified Feldenkrais practitioner. Robert has taught private voice lessons and voice and movement classes at Naropa University, Haverford College, and Pace University, and has maintained an active private studio for over 15 years, most recently working with well-known and successful actors and singers in New York City. Robert has also been a guest teacher at Harvard University, the University of Michigan, and Barcelona University. And his article, Bearing the Bones, Making the Shift from a Muscular to a Skeletal Paradigm in Voice Training, published in the Voice and Speech Review, won the Forum Article of the Year Award. Welcome, Robert. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Marcia. <laughs> and you are, where in the world are you at this moment? I am in Split, Croatia. Amazing, right next to the ocean, I hear. Right next to the ocean, it's beautiful. It's a, it's an ancient Roman town, and the Venetians were here, so it has an Italian flair, wow. even though we're in Croatia. And Croatia has handled the COVID-19 crisis well to date, from what I hear, so uh, that's I'm so glad to hear that and that you're in a safe place. Very well, yes. Great. And uh, so can you tell us a little bit about you, how you teach? I, I have studied with you a bit, and... Um, so know a little bit about how you work. It's really um, unusual, I, I think, for voice teachers to have such a deep knowledge of the bones of the body and how that affects the voice. And that is really something that I have um, really appreciated from what I've learned from you. But maybe you want to say a bit about how you integrate your voice teaching with your movement teaching as well. Yes. Well, as I said in the bio, these two studies of how the voice functions and how the body self functions have have basically been at first two parallel processes as I was younger and as I've gotten older they've really fused and merged into one process I don't see voice as separate from body and self mm -hmm. I don't see body and self as separate from voice anymore which has been a really nice shift it took a while to get there mm -hmm. but I do I do teach on the other side of that shift which is I don't make a separation between between body and voice or body, voice, and self. Mm -hmm. And so I have studied a lot of voice science and vocal function and of course have practiced and, and studied my own voice and worked with a lot of people. And so taking the principles of Feldenkrais, the Feldenkrais method, which is a, a, a somatic education method, which was looking at basically movement and holistic holistic improvement through awareness mm -hmm. basically since the since the 50s and 60s of the 1900s mm -hmm. and and moved through and advanced uh, Feldenkrais Moshe Feldenkrais died in in 1984 mm -hmm. um, and so he he was looking at how to how to use the how to use movement to update the self to the self in such mm -hmm. a way that one can improve one's 
ability to do what one wants and to function in the world better. And it's a very comprehensive method. So it's not easy to explain, mm -hmm. but all the principles are applicable to voice. And so when I took the voice training, I kept thinking, wow, how does this apply to voice? How does this apply to voice? Mm -hmm. How does this apply to voice? And so I was taking all these movement lessons that were overall physical, you know, arms and legs and spines and heads mm -hmm. and, and all of that and thinking, okay, now how do I do this with vocal parts? How do I connect this to vocal parts mm -hmm. and sound? And, and years and years of chewing on that, eventually it all started to come together, actually. Mm -hmm. And so you can work with the feet and it has an implication and a shift in the vocal folds. You yeah. can work with, with the palate and it shifts the pelvic floor. You can work with the ribs and it has something to do with high notes mm -hmm. and not in the traditional mm -hmm. sense like brace your ribs yeah. or support it's a different it's a different way of of looking at connections yeah and interconnections and that's that's the basic approach it's so cool <laughs> i get so excited i remember when i took your workshop there a number of years ago i think this was 2015 i took a workshop with you in new york and i was working a very very busy and kind of stressful day job and we would spend hours lying on the floor in your class mm -hmm. kind of really delving into this awareness um of of what it is that we were feeling in all these different kind of minute right. aspects. Um, and it was such an amazing shift for me because I was used to like my day being planned in like 10 minute increments, you know, like mm -hmm. go, 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 go. <laughs> and the pace of that class was such a shift for me. Um, it was hard for me to adjust right. to, but it had a really big impact on me. And I don't know, I've been talking to a lot of people on this podcast about how our sense of time feels really different right now. Mm -hmm. um, for those of us who are who are inside and and I know it must be very different for people who are essential workers and who are still kind of in the crush of things and in a different kind of uh, they must feel a different kind of pace but a lot of people that I have spoken with who are mostly inside have really been trying to grapple with um, kind of some of the things that I, I think you teach which is how to be more aware <laughs> in a different kind of pace and um, so I just wanted to mention that and that's part of why I'm excited to have you here. Great. Well, there is a key in what you're saying, which I didn't mention, which is the key to really unlocking the potential of how the brain can update what it knows to do with its body mm -hmm. is paying attention to and becoming aware of sensations. Mm -hmm. And so most of us do things, but we're not paying attention to what we're doing while we do it and let alone the sensations associated with it at a very subtle level. Mm -hmm. And when you slow things down and you expand time and you really let awareness go to these details that we don't normally pay attention to, a whole other world opens up. Mm -hmm. And it's in that world where you can interface with potential that you didn't know you had. Mm -hmm. And so many things can shift in the subtle world of sensations that trickle out to bigger things that yeah. if you struggle on the other levels it doesn't really work very well but if you go down to this quiet almost listening to the whisper of yourself mm -hmm. level the shift there can happen and then it, it translates and and that's sort of a magic part of this way of learning yeah thank you for explaining that and it's so true i think it's part of why people often feel like the voice um, 
well, we or we experience that that working with the voice unlocks so many other parts of our lives, right? Um, right. Can you say? I know you have some upcoming workshops that you're teaching oh, online. Yeah. You've you are a very experienced online teacher <laughs> in yeah. addition to all of your uh, international teaching that you do. So, do you want to yes. say a bit about what you have coming up in case anyone wants to join? Sure, I have a series coming up at the end of this month, uh, at the end of May, called "Beholding the Eyes." which is looking at the connection of the eyes and voice, which mm-hmm. is a really interesting um, exploration. So there's four classes on that. Um, I also have a, a series I do every year called The Voice Incorporated. Uh-huh. And I have two more of those coming up, one in June and one in October. Mm-hmm. And the one in June is all about what I call the, the interconnected larynx. So looking at the larynx as a crossroads of mm-hmm. the whole body, which is really wow. interesting. And then the one in October is what I call, is um, all about mixed voice and how to look at mixed voice, which we think of in a very vocal way. In quotes, in the air quotes, the quote mixed unquotes, voice. Quote unquotes, yeah, yeah have quote unquotes going. <laughs> uh-huh. But from a somatic point of view, and what is, what is this mixing thing going on there? And um, that's really interesting. So that's in very October. Very cool. And I have um, what I call the singing self program. It's a library of about 300 plus hours of classes mm-hmm. that I've recorded that you can sign up for and and it becomes a program basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and these are all available on your website is that right on my website yeah they're all listed at vocallearningsystems.com okay great vocallearningsystems.com great yeah. well thank you for for going through all of that You're i welcome. would love if you could now lead us through your exercise oh sure um normally i don't do short form things um, and I, I know this is so mossy. This is Mossy's imposition. <laughs> oh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, but, but that's okay. That's okay. And awareness needs to be fast and slow. I think that's the other thing. Can I go back one second? Can you say mm-hmm. a bit about why you don't use the word exercise? I'm really, I'm really oh, yeah. curious. Yeah. So exercise implies an outcome that's predictable. Okay. And I like to use the word lesson, experience, or experiment i usually use the okay. word lesson that's the tr- that's the traditional word in the feldenkrais approach okay it's a lesson and there's no goal there's an intention there's a connection to functionality mm-hmm. but what happens with each person will be different so you don't really know mm-hmm. what the outcome will be will there be improvement most likely will mm-hmm. it be positive yes will it have to do with the tongue for one person breathing for another person posture mm-hmm. for another person yeah, so you don't really know. So I can't say this is a posture exercise. I can't even say this is a, a voice exercise. Mm-hmm. I can say that this is a lesson and it has built into it lots of functional connections and understanding that will have a positive impact. And I've done it enough with enough people that I know generally what kind of impact it will have, mm-hmm. but there's no, there's no knowing truly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I don't use the word exercise. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes complete sense. I appreciate your your walking through that. And I think it's mm. useful for any of us to go into something that anybody else may call an exercise, realizing that the things that we may take away may be different than the things that they are trying to prescribe right. for us. Mm-hmm. Right. Great. So beware when you're told before what should happen after. Mm. Because there's a subtle... There's a subtle um, manipulation that goes on there mm-hmm. and if you're trying to make something happen because you've been told that an exercise is for that and will do this yeah you might actually be forcing something that either isn't ready to happen 
or isn't really there. Yeah. 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 Very cool. So we will do a lesson. This will be a mini lesson, Great. more of an experiment. So it, as we said earlier, the, a lot of this is based on sensation. And the first uh, thing to do is to sense yourself. Mm -hmm. So take a moment, quiet down, bring your attention inside, which for most of us is not so easy to do. We're very externally focused. Just bring your attention inside. Are you closing your eyes? I close my eyes. Mm -hmm. You don't have to. You can okay. have it open or closed. Okay. Um, you decide what, what you like. You could soften your gaze. And bring your attention to your breathing. The movements as you inhale and exhale. The movements of the torso, the ribs, the abdomen, the belly, the back. And so the idea is to start to wake up our sense of what's happening in the background. Notice how tall or long your spine feels. And I like to ask little somatic riddles as ways of waking people up too. So notice the place inside yourself where the spine ends and the skull begins. It's a very particular area of the skeleton at the top of the spine and the bottom of the skull rests on the top of the spine. Where is that juncture where spine meets skull? And if you make a tiny little movement like you're saying a little yes or a little no, just very tiny, it can help you cue into that place where the spine sits on top of the skull. So if you nod your head a tiny, tiny little yes gesture, and then no, left, right, just tiny, tiny. And the tinier you make it, the closer to that point where the spine meets the skull, the movement is occurring. Where is that and how easy is that? And then leave that and very softly and gently open and close your mouth and notice what that's like. How the jaw swings, how the tongue and the throat accommodate the movement of the jaw. What happens in the back of the mouth. And then leave that. So this would all be kind of background setup. Now, normally on a Zoom or um, online lesson, I would have people sing something, but I have the volume off. So in the workshops, I never actually mm. hear people sing, which I think is fantastic. So <laughs> it's the best to have 20 people in a voice workshop and no one hears anyone sing. It's so good. Why? Why is it good? Why? Because you're not influenced by anyone I and see. you can't make anyone else the expert. It has to be you. I see. Okay. Which is okay. how it should be. But mm -hmm. as soon as you're in a room and you can hear other people and be heard, then, yeah. you know, then it becomes political, basically. Or it becomes people start trying to do certain things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, one, I can't comment on whether I think it's good or bad, and they can't copy anyone. So it's right. really, it's really fantastic. So, <laughs>
if you want to take a moment to sing something right now and just see what it's like, now would be the moment. Okay. Leave a little space in the recording for people just to sing something easy. Great. Okay, let's go ahead. Great, and just notice how it sounded, what it felt like, and it becomes a reference. Mm-hmm. So now we'll do a little, a little uh, intervention, let's say. So have your mouth softly open where the jaw is hanging and the tongue is hanging a little bit forward over the bottom lip, leaving the tongue over the teeth toward the top of the bottom lip, that's it. And there's a place to rest the tongue here. In other words, if you really let the tongue go, let the holding and kind of muscular posturing that we do in the tongue release, the tongue can hang freely toward the bottom lip over the teeth. When you release the tongue, it expands in all directions, especially forward. And now, as you have your tongue in this position, Pay attention to what's happening in the back of your mouth and choose to breathe only through the mouth with your tongue in this position. So your mouth is a little open and choose to breathe only through your mouth in and out. And notice how do you do that? How do you choose to breathe only through the mouth? What do you do back there? And then of course, we have other choices. You could also choose to breathe only in and out through the nose with the mouth still in this kind of open position with the tongue hanging forward. How do you choose to do that? There are several ways to do that. You could close off the back or you could leave it open and direct the air primarily through the nose. which will wake up all sorts of interesting sensations and patterns back there, which we might not normally engage. And then go back and forth a few times in and out through just the nose, a few times in and out through just the mouth. And notice this question of how do you choose? What are you doing that allows you to make that choice? And then of course we have a third option. You can breathe in and out through the mouth and the nose at the same time. Now, how do you choose that? And how do you know? So you see these questions, they wake up, they wake things up inside of you and they ask you to access things, which is what makes it a lesson. And then just breathe as you you wish with the tongue hanging forward a jaw open, and a few times switch back and forth between all three options, just the mouth, just the nose, both. And we know you can do it. 
If you're not sure, you can use your fingers to feel in front of the mouth and the nose just to make sure you're, you're doing what you think you're doing. But the important part is cue into the sensations of what's really changing back there for you to be able to do it. Not just that you can do it. What are you doing? How are you moving? How do you know? And that's what makes it a sensory exploration, not just a movement or breathing exercise. Then pause for a moment. Open and close your mouth and see what it's like. Now often waking up what's going on in the back like this has an influence on the jaw, which is interesting. The jaw will often be smoother in its movements. Something gets easier. Do you notice something, Masi? Yeah, I do notice that my jaw is moving much more easily. I don't know. It's it's interesting. I love that you are asking us to notice that things are happening and not try and figure out why, because mm-hmm. then that makes us forget about what it is that's actually... It, it can make us forget about what it is that's actually happening. Right. Yeah. So Indeed. I definitely feel that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now... We can take this in an interesting direction, which is with the mouth open, the jaw hanging, the tongue softly forward. Get a sense of how you're moving and breathing back there. You can choose now, mouth, nose, both, whatever is easy. And imagine, don't do it yet. Just imagine that you could speak the words of the song that you sang or just count from one to 20, whatever is easiest. Imagine that you could speak only using the back of the mouth without moving the jaw at all, the lips, or the front of the tongue. How could you speak the text of your song or counting from 1 to 20, whatever is easy? Just imagine what are the possibilities back there where you could actually speak without moving the front of your mouth, which is what we normally move. So if I was speaking right now, you can still understand me, but I'm only using the back of my mouth. <laughs> yes, oops, I just lost it. Okay, yes. <laughs> How? That's an interesting question. So now begin, you can use your back of your mouth to speak the text of your song without moving the lips, the tongue, or the jaw in the front. How do you do that? and actually do it. And how articulate can you be? How articulate can you be? Now there's a trick. You can use substitutions. You can make little sounds back there to substitute for the ones you would normally do in the front. Uh And you'd be amazed by how many configurations and sounds and variations we have back there that we don't use, not in in English. In other other languages, they have all sorts of um, dexterity back there, like Danish or Arabic. But in English, we tend to be very front-focused, especially American English. And we ignore this back part, which functionally has a lot of power. So we can wake it up by starting to use variations that bring life to this part in the back. 
And ideally, you should be clearly able to articulate the text of your song only using the back of your mouth. And once you've done that to your satisfaction, make it, make it playful, make it silly. Start having the pitch go up and down, like you have a silly voice, even though you're talking in the back there. So you can start varying the pitch. So if I were counting, so it's not just one monotone, but let it be expressive, even silly, with the text of your song or counting. Make it fun. And then leave that. Rest for a moment with your mouth softly open, tongue forward, and notice how you're breathing through the mouth, the nose, and both. Perhaps your sense of that space has shifted back there. And how do you move back and forth between those options if you want to? And then open and close your mouth a few times and see what that's like now. How does the jaw move now compared to before? And what's different? And then sit quietly for a moment and notice your sense of the spine, how tall you feel, your breathing anything else that seems to be a little different after this little exploration. And then sing whatever it is you sang in the beginning, if you did, and see what it's like without trying to make it anything in particular. Just sing and see what's happened. What's happened with the tone, the ease, the color. And then leave it and rest. <laughs> and you know, we could do lots of variations with this. This could become a long form exploration, which, which I would do. But this should be enough to give a little flavor so I'm wondering, yeah, what was that like? And this was what did this bring? great. This was so great, Robert. Um, I feel like, you know, one of the things I've been worried about because I'm, I'm um, isolating alone mm. <laughs> in my apartment here in Chicago. I'm in an apartment building and I've been worried that my voice is going to get really small because mm. I don't want to sing too loud to annoy my neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. So when I first sang, it was very small. Mm. And what really struck me about this exercise is that, like, I don't even know if I can explain this, by becoming more aware of how the space inside 
my mouth and my throat is alive. Like almost like I felt like I could see it in a different color. Mm. By feeling like there was just more spaciousness, there was just more there, then I somehow was able to sing in a way that I was able to feel like there was more space in the room that I'm in, even though the room has not changed. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Isn't that yeah. interesting? Yeah, yeah. Now there is something interesting there, which is the inside-outside distinction. Right, right. Is the space inside your mouth part of your body or part of the outside environment? Yeah, I love this. One of the things I always remember from an exercise that you led us through is that we were laying and you said, where does the room end and your mouth begin? Which is the question you're asking right Right. now. Yeah. And how far into you does it go? That's so fascinating. Yeah. And so one thing I've been thinking lately is, is... all of the properties of how we engage in our environment externally mm-hmm. are the same that we do to engage in that environment internally. Mm-hmm. So how well oriented are you in the room of your mouth, mm-hmm. in the room of your throat? And, and most people aren't very well oriented, <laughs> which yeah. is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But you can become more and more um, aware and clear about how you use yourself inside yourself and in this kind of in-between zone of inside-outside where the, the mouth and the throat live. I feel like I'm, I'm really feeling the tension of making you chop this exercise yeah. <laughs> so short it wants it's to be okay. longer. It's so it's a, good, it's a good moment of awareness for me too mm-hmm. to remember that a distillation can sometimes be a violence. Um, do you have a name for this exercise? Oh, yes. I came up with a name for you, which is uh, pharyngeal ventriloquism. Yes. <laughs> pharyngeal ventriloquism. Yeah. And do you want to say what pharyngeal means for anyone who yes. knows that now? So the pharynx is the, the fancy scientific word for the, the back wall of the mouth. And the, the pharynx is the, the, the part that is behind the nose, the back wall behind the nose, behind the mouth, and behind the, the throat or the larynx. We mm-hmm. call that the pharynx. So mm-hmm. in, in order to be able to make these sounds at the back, you have to really work the, what we call the, the pharyngeal area. Great. Pharyngeal ventriloquism. Thank you so much, Robert, for making the time to do this. You're very I really, welcome. really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. That's it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll return for my next episode likely two weeks from now. In future, I plan to welcome Catherine Mizell, Bowling Green State University Associate Professor and author of the new book, Multivocality, Elias Krell, Vassar College Assistant Professor, and Ryan Dehoney, my colleague at Northwestern. Until then.